Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. All right, everybody. Good morning. Welcome back again this week. Um, we have a few new people in, in class today, so glad, glad y'all are here. And uh, again, just a reminder, we're recording these, so uh, that's also why we kind of have it coming over the speakers for you this morning. Um, we are going to be today in Luke chapter 5 and 6, and I, every time we get together, I do this in all my classes, so it, I don't want it to be kind of you know, demeaning to you in the sense of like, oh, do you think we forget all of this every time we go home? But I also know a lot of things happen um, between our times that we meet together on Sunday, and so sometimes it's helpful to, uh, to rewind a little bit and to replay. It's kind of like what they do. I don't know if you watch like Netflix or one of those video services um, when you're watching an episode and they do a rewind and they show you everything that's happened up until the episode you're currently getting ready to watch. And so they do the formerly on the last episode, but it's really maybe over the last three or four episodes. Um, I hope it's a little bit like that. Uh, to remind us of where we've been. Uh, That helps us set the stage for where we're getting ready to go. So if I'm going to do a formally on our previous episodes, uh, we're going to remember that we uh, talked about Jesus uh, and his birth up through age 12, week one. And we discovered a couple things about that first week. Uh, We discovered about Jesus and his birth, that it was an unusual birth, but that God was going to reverse things and turn them upside down that compared to the emperor who was in Rome, Jesus was born as a baby to an obscure family in an obscure village, and excuse me, eventually Bethlehem, but they lived in Nazareth in an obscure village in kind of a backwater town. I don't know. We could say maybe like Orinoco, Missouri, right? Um, When I tell people where I'm from and where I live, especially if I talk about where I go to church, a lot of time they'll go, where is that and what does it mean? And of course, Orinoco, we have this mining background and they get all kinds of pictures in their mind of what this place looks like. And some of them are correct, right, when it comes to the picture. Um, so Jesus is born in kind of this obscure backwater place uh, away from kind of the power and politics of Jerusalem as well as Rome. And it's this reminder that Jesus is going to come and he's going to actually turn the world upside down. The things that look like they're powerful are not going to be so powerful anymore. So that was week one. Uh, Week two, we talked about the beginnings of Jesus's ministry, and John the Baptist came, and he was telling people to repent. And we said that the word repent is the idea of changing your allegiance as well as changing your direction. So we said repentance is a response where we say, yeah, I'm going to walk the other direction, but it's also I'm going to follow someone else or give my allegiance to another kingdom. And I use the illusion of the the Chiefs are in the Super Bowl today of my son who likes the Broncos, doesn't like the Broncos, likes the Chiefs, doesn't like the Chiefs. Now he likes the Bengals. I don't know what he'll do today. But hence often Egypt's from, now he's kind of fickle. Well, yeah, it is. We do the same thing to Jesus, okay? We repent and then turn to Jesus and then we follow other things again. And then we have to repent and give our allegiance back to Jesus and follow him again. And so John the Baptist was telling people to repent. And we said that he baptized Jesus in the Jordan River last week. And we said that that somewhat was a rewind of Israel's history where they remembered they're going into the promised land and how God provided for them in the wilderness. And then Jesus was tempted in the same wilderness for 40 days rather than 40 years. As a reminder again, that Jesus is going to, if we repent and follow him, he's going to lead us successfully where others have failed, where Adam failed and sinned, Jesus wants to lead us to overcome. Uh, Where Israel grumbled in the wilderness and complained about God's provision, Jesus wants to teach us and disciple us of how to overcome or be the kind of people that God has created us to be. Uh, I want to clarify, that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. You know this. But that does mean that Jesus is going to provide a way for us to become more like the people or more human than what we have been in our own sinfulness. And so that's kind of where we left off last week, was this um, preview um, that is kind of opening Jesus's ministry. And then we kind of had some small little moments where Jesus proclaimed his kingdom coming. First of all, we went to Nazareth and he 
read from Isaiah and he said, guess what? This is going to be an upside down kingdom. I'm coming to give jubilee or joy, celebration to the poor and the outsiders. And then they wanted to throw them off the cliff. So, so that's kind of how everything started. Today is the day we actually start into Jesus's public ministry. He's going to gather his 12 disciples. He's going to start his ministry in this public region, still backwater, still somewhat agricultural, blue-collar area of Galilee. And actually what's weird about Galilee is a lot of Gentiles, I put Tyre and Sidon on here because they're further north on the map, a lot of Gentiles actually interact in this region more so compared to down here. So there's a lot of access to outsiders. This entire region over here called the Decapolis or the Ten Cities is actually a region of ten Gentile cities. It's kind of like the Big Ten in college football. There's ten cities that are in alliance together. In college football, there's kind of ten cities. Sometimes there's more, sometimes there's less. Kind of like the Big Ten. And so here's this region of Gentiles, and Jesus is going to cross the lake every now and again, and he's going to be in Gentile territory. And Luke is saying all the way throughout, that's just like his birth. He's coming for the elders. He's going to turn the world upside down. So there's some episode previews of where we're going. I also said this, that the entire book of Luke, and you're going to get tired of me hearing this, the entire book of Luke wants to have us walk with Jesus and experience three things. Maybe, should I test you on this? What are those, what's the first thing? Walk with Jesus is, is kind of the first thing. Like walk with Jesus. Luke invites us to go on a walk with Jesus. Like the, okay, we're going to be walking with Jesus today. Then we kind of moved, I guess normally we move this way. We kind of moved the arrow from walking with Jesus to a symbol. What's the symbol in this spot? What was that? Okay, ask questions. Yeah, we're going to walk with Jesus, but we don't know everything about him. Even Mary, the mother of Jesus, didn't know everything about this boy that she had. God told her some things, but she was pondering them in her heart. This is true of the disciples. It's going to be true all the way to the end. They're going to walk with Jesus, ask questions about Jesus. And then I drew a third symbol. What's the third symbol? You mentioned this one already before class. The aha moment. Okay, a light bulb where you go, oh, I now see Jesus clearly. And this is an ongoing process in the Gospel of Luke as we follow Jesus. The entire Gospel now, now that our story is going to start in Galilee, is going to be Jesus traveling south. It's going to say up because it's up in elevation. But we're going to be traveling south all the way to Jerusalem in Judea where we're going to come to the crucifixion. And as we do, what we're going to have is people following Jesus, figuring out who he is in Galilee, They're going to come to a light bulb moment. Oh, you're the Messiah. Then he's going to say, yes, but I'm going to die on a cross. Light bulb moment. From that moment on, they're going to start traveling south. And that's where we're heading. And so we're in phase one. If you notice on your handout, I put in brackets the phrase in Galilee. And really over the next couple months, we're going to notice that we're in Galilee. Then we're on our way to Judea and on our way to Jerusalem. And then we're actually in Jerusalem for the last a third of our class today. And so that's, that's kind of how this ends up being bracketed up. I don't know if geography helps you, but geography is a major part of this story in Luke's gospel because it's a quest narrative. It's Frodo getting the ring to Mount, Do- uh, Mount Doom. And quest narratives they have. Um, one of them I just watched recently with my kids was called RV with Robin Williams. And they were just in an RV trying to get somewhere. It's a quest narrative, as goofy as I'll get out. Um, but we have these kinds of stories that location really does matter of where we're at in the story. Other, other questions or other um, comments that you have coming out of the last few weeks, things that were aha moments, things that you've been reflecting on, um, leading us to chapter 5, so through chapter 1 through 4. Questions or things you want to bring up before we get started? Okay. And I, I appreciate, you know, one of you before class today said, boy, this idea of Jesus wandering in the wilderness and that connection to Egypt, or to uh, Moses and the Exodus and wandering from Egypt, that was helpful for me to see that there's bigger things going on behind some of these things. That's going to be true today. So let's, let's go and turn to, to uh, Luke chapter 5, and we're going to start in verses 1 through 11. And if I could, if I could have someone read verses 1 through 11 out loud, that would be really helpful for us. 
Okay, good deal. Well, thanks for reading that. Probably a familiar text for most of us. If it's not, it's okay. Um, but I want to ask the question from our paradigm, walk with Jesus, ask questions about Jesus, and aha moments. So can I ask you kind of what are the aha moments in these first 11 verses? If you're not looking at the handout, but like as you just walk with Jesus in this text, what aha moments do they have? Yeah, good. Yeah, there's, there's a dynamic to where there, there's a blessing in this text as well as a, and yet if you are who I now think you are, I know who I am more clearly. Now, can I ask you this question? Does Jesus want to make you comfortable? The answer is yes, kind of, and no. Like comfortable in the sense of coming to him and comfortable in the sense of moving you to a place where eventually you're going to have peace and restoration and reconciliation and contentment and, and eternity with him? Absolutely, yes. But what about in yourself and in your own brokenness? No, he may actually want to turn you upside down it so that you know that you need to repent. There's that repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. And Jesus' message, like John the Baptist, is the same message, right? Repent, change your allegiance, change your direction, come follow me. And so I love Peter's response here. First of all, he does. He obeys. Okay. Jesus isn't a fisherman. You ever had someone trying to tell you what to do when that's not their occupation? Right? I mean, this is like me trying to go to my grandpa, right? And be like, Grandpa, that's not how you fix that car. He's a mechanic. He knows better than I do. Right? Grandpa teaches me how to fix cars. Uh, This is like me going to my friend who's a carpenter, a trim carpenter. And telling him he did a bad job at the trim around the fireplace. No, he's a carpenter, not me. And so here's Jesus. He's a carpenter going to Peter, a fisherman, and telling him to throw it out. Peter's like, what? Now here's my question. Did Peter know Jesus before this? And the answer is actually yes. We actually learned that in John's gospel. Um, we don't see it as much in Luke's. But in John's gospel, he kind of fills in a gap for us. That these disciples were followers of John the Baptist, And John the Baptist said, hey, go follow Jesus. So they've actually observed Jesus for some time. So it's not like this cold obedience of Jesus, but But they have reason for obeying him in this moment. And uh, and I love this scene because there is an obedience there that says it doesn't make sense, but I'll do it anyhow. I'm trying to teach this to my kids, right? I'm trying to teach my kids. You may not know why I'm telling you to do this, but trust your dad. I have a reason. I have a 16-year-old daughter, a 13-year-old son, and a 10-year-old daughter. You can imagine in our family that all three of those phases have a reason for me to give them instructions. You know, for, for my daughter, as she's learning how to drive and learning responsibility and navigating relationships and friendships in high school and same, same kind of thing with my son as he's turning on the TV and as he's watching things. No, I have a reason. And so I just need you to trust me and obey. And Peter does in this moment. But, but I have found that his response to Jesus in this particular scene is first at first surprising, but second of all, probably revealing of his heart that Peter knows he's a sinful man. And can I just say to you, like in our own walk with Jesus, as we come and we approach Jesus, oftentimes our questions are like about Jesus and who are you and what are you going to do for me? And are you really who you say you are? We have like all these questions about Jesus. And then Jesus actually has some questions for us. And sometimes the light bulb is actually like, oh, I see myself. Now notice Jesus doesn't turn Peter away. So can I set the stage for you? Comes to this opening scene. The people Jesus invites to be his disciples are messy, broken, sinful people. Can I say, praise the Lord, thank you. I'm glad. So my best response to Jesus, yes, I now see my but thank you for letting me still follow you in this. And so I love that response. I also love about Jesus that these are still the very people he calls to follow him. Now, looking at your handout, a couple things about this that just set the stage for us, okay? And, and this will help us out throughout the next couple weeks. Um, the Sea of Galilee is kind of a, I mean, the word sea is a little bit of a stretch. Can I just be honest with you? It's a lake. It's not very big. I've been there. Um, I hiked a mountain. Uh, we hiked from Nazareth about oh, 12 miles a day, 15 miles a day, and then peaked a mountain. This is a very mountainous area. Um, there, there's a mountain that is kind of right on the edge. In fact, it goes all the way even back to some battle scenes with Herod the Great. And in the Middle Ages, it was seen a few battles. Um, but as you crest this mountain, all of a sudden, the Sea of Galilee opens up in front of you. And you can see the whole Sea of Galilee. 
And, and you can see the boats down there. And you can see people around and the fields. It's very cool, this area is. And so it's just not very far across. So you can kind of notice the, the miles I put on there. It's 11 miles tall. I don't know that this is to scale. I always draw it like a balloon, like a pear is what people say. It looks like upside down. Um, it's 11 miles long, seven miles, seven miles wide. And so you can see, the, the interesting thing about it is it's below sea level, 682 feet below sea level. It's the second lowest body of water on Earth, second only to the Dead Sea further down the Jordan River. So that causes it to have weird, violent storms because the, the clouds that form, the storms that form, form over the Mediterranean Sea, come over a mountainous area, sometimes down a valley called Megiddo, as in like Armageddon, come down through this valley and then come over those mountains and then rush down onto the Sea of Galilee and it causes these violent squalls to pop up on the Sea of Galilee. We're going to see some of those in our text. And so it's kind of just this interesting um, land, uh, you know, kind of when it comes to the, the topography of it. But it has a number of different names based upon who's like, who's in charge. Does this make sense? Um, I'm trying to think of the best, the best, best I gave in class week, Nali, which used to be called Mount McKinley. I think that's, that, that, those are the two names. And so it just kind of depends on who gets the naming rights, right? So if it's the local people, then they get their name. Or, you know, in the case of Mount Denali, probably some, some uh, local tribes that had lived there before. And then, of course, as uh, colonists or settlers had come across, they name it after Prince or things like that. So Mount McKinley. So this would be true of, of the Sea of Galilee. So when it comes to Sea of Galilee, obviously we have this region that is, it's named after, but other people come along and call it different things. One is Gennesaret, which here's the thing about words, and I'm just going to say this out loud. We don't know how many of them are pronounced anyhow, and so I'm, I'm telling you as like a person who has a degree, sometimes you just say it as fast as you can. Can I just give you permission? Say it as fast as you can and go, okay? And, and, and don't quote me on that, or you can quote me on that. It's funny, because um, Hebrew is a dead language, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of funny because I stumble over some of those words. So uh, I'm just trying to be transparent with you. Um, so that word means garden, though. And, and I want to kind of paint this picture because it is an agricultural area next to a lake. You know what these kind of, with, with some elevation. And so Arkansas kind of has some scenery that looks similar, to be honest. Maybe a little less of the underbrush, a little bit more arid than that. Um, but the, when it comes to the topography of mountains, kind of a similar area. Um, there's also the word chinnereth, which means harp. And I didn't draw it like a harp, but you can kind of see how the shape, an upside-down pear, would look like a harp. And so that's, that's a word that's used um, and this lake. And then we also have it being called the lake or sea of Tiberius, as in the emperor. And Herod the Great and his family, Herod Antipas, um, they changed the name of it to honor the emperor, and they actually built a city uh, about right, a city called Tiberius as well, and you can go there today. Jesus, as far as we know, was never there. Um, when we took a boat across the Sea of Galilee, we got on up here at Capernaum, and we kind of came through the lake like that and went. Here's the interesting thing. If you're on the mountain, either here or here, you can watch that boat go all the way across the water. If you could walk on water, you could probably get out and catch up to that boat, I'm guessing. And you could see if it was having trouble, as if like the people who are rowing it were rowing against the wind and not getting anywhere. It would be kind of funny to catch up to them and pass them. Just going to say, I think Jesus at times has a sense of humor. Um, when it comes to the nets that they're washing, this is very common. I mean, when it comes to the historical value of this scene, it's very, very common in the ancient world. You would mend or retie nets. You would unravel them. But you had different kinds of nets. And in the gospel, we have, um, and not mentioned in, in my notes here, we have drag nets that you would drag between boats. You have circular throw nets that you would throw out into the Sea of Galilee. And they would have weights that would bell up. And then you would pull the ropes back and do them inside your boat. And then you would actually have little throw nets on the side where you'd catch minnows. You've seen people do this kind of a thing, perhaps. Uh, and you'd catch minnows there. Jesus at times is uh, coming up to the disciples and they're doing that. And then once we have an actual line, a fishing line that is being used, they're going to use any means necessary. So picture the history here. You can actually go today online, maybe not right now, and you can Google the word or the phrase Jesus boat, Sea of Galilee, 
And they actually uncovered about right there near Megiddo, uh, or excuse me, Magdala, where Mary Magdalene may have been from. They actually dug out a boat that they found from the first century out of the mud at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. They had to do it underwater. So they surrounded it with foam before they used a crane to lift the whole thing out, set it in a museum, of course, took off the foam then. It sounds like a big science project. And it, it's a first century boat that would be similar to the kinds of boat, it's large, the kinds of boats that Jesus is actually using in this scene here. Here's the other last thing I want to say about it. This area, being a body of water surrounded by mountains, becomes a natural acoustic um, device that Jesus uses. Obviously, we're using a microphone in the room this morning, but without that technology, think about this moment. Jesus gets out on a boat. He's now distanced enough from the crowd that they can all see him equally or fairly, and the acoustics that come off are like an amphitheater. It's hitting against that mountain, and they can now hear him acoustically. The Romans had perfected a number of these things in their theaters. You could actually stand at the bottom of a theater and speak in my normal voice right now. And the way that the acoustics work, they knew what they were doing. You can hear the voice of the orator or whatever was happening uh, all the way up to the top. And of course, there's an art to then projecting your voice as well. And so this dynamic of, of Jesus out here with the disciples, there's a lot of historical value to some of the very uh, small details that are even here. And so we want to pay attention to that dynamic as they play out. So coming back to discipleship, Jesus calls us to disciple, discipleship and to be disciples even when we're not perfect. What kind of people is Jesus going to be for? He's going to be for sinners. And even backwater fishermen, blue-collar guys who aren't perfect. And he's going to call them to come follow him. He's going to call them to repentance and to, to come follow. Who else are G is Jesus for? Uh, here's what we're going to notice. If I could, let's have someone read verses 12 down through verse, let's go through verse 16 first of all. All right, thank you. Notice this is the second time, the last one was at the end of chapter 4, that Jesus has gone away alone to desolate places, alone places, to pray. Uh, if Jesus needed to go away to pray so that he could come back and engage with like the crowds and the chaos, that might be something that we need to do as followers of Jesus as well. Okay, I, I just pick up on following or asking questions. Jesus, we come to aha moments. This is one of those aha moments that I have often. Oh, the reason I'm so tired and angry or empty is because I'm actually not following Jesus. In one of the primary things we see in the book of Luke is him praying and getting away from it all to rest and reconnect with God, pray, and come back. You're going to notice even today, this is going to happen multiple times. Before big things happen, Jesus is often praying. So where did he go for desolate places? Well, I don't know. There's mountains all the way around here. There's plenty of places. My favorite mountain is that mountain where I first saw the Sea of Galilee. I, I, could, I could spend a few days there camping, just reflecting. Um, and so, I, you know, as I spent some time there, and again, we were backpacking, um, there's several moments I'm like, I, I love this place. Like, it's beautiful. It, there, there's beautiful scenery there. It's interesting that even as Jesus gets down to the city of Jerusalem, you know where they spend the night? A garden outside of city, the city called, what, Gethsemane? Okay, garden on a mountain called the Mount of Olives or an olive press. And I think it's a pri probably a private walled-in garden. But I think it reminds Jesus maybe of up here. It's more spread out up here. I'm a Colorado kid. I like getting where there's nobody. My favorite place to be is where no one knows where I'm at. And I can't see a single person. It's where actually, in, in many cases, one of the places where I feel ne nearest to God. And, and I am refilled. I have that affinity with Jesus and see that he says, this is actually appropriate for you. So we, we notice a few things. Here we have a leper. In the ancient world, you, you probably know this, uh, leprosy was not a, an exact uh, disease as it is today. Um, it is kind of a range of skin diseases. And so leprosy was one of those things that would make you unclean. When I say unclean, don't just hear... I'm going to use a technical phrase, post-pasturin germs, 
and how we think about uncleanliness. Pasteur, obviously, okay, and, and not inventor, uh, one who discovered at least the theory of germs. Okay, there's the very non-technical phrase. Um, and so here's this dynamic. What does unclean mean? It is more about, it is more about his social and cultic slash ability to go into the tabernacle or temple and worship, so religious cleanliness, than it is about not having clean hands or anything like that. The dynamic here is meant to be symbolic of the fact that we need to have a clean inside when we come into God's presence. There's symbolism of it, so I fully recognize that. But notice what happens with Jesus every time he comes to someone who is unclean. Normally, uncleanliness goes from me, if I'm unclean, to the other person. So if I'm dead and you come touch me, my uncleanliness went to you because now you're unclean because you touched what was unclean. Or same thing, the, the woman who's bleeding for 12 years, she it makes everyone else unclean when they come into contact with her. Jesus is exactly the opposite. When he comes into contact with people, they become, rather than him becoming unclean. Does that sound like your encounters with Jesus? Like, I don't know, like contact with death, they become, contact with sin, they get forgiven. Contact with disease, they get healed. I love that about Jesus. And it's one of the things you're going to discover again and again and again. But can I ask you a hard question? Did Jesus heal every single person he encountered? No. I've always wrestled with that a little bit. I've always kind of wondered, like, why couldn't Jesus just, like, take his fist and, like, hit the ground and be like, and all of a sudden everyone in, like, a huge area was healed? Well, I think he could have. But why didn't he? I I don't know if that's, like, even a good question. But as I'm walking with Jesus, it's one of the questions I'm asking. And one of the things that I'm continuing to discover is that Jesus' miracles actually point to the future of what he's going to do for everybody someday not just the miracle he does on one day. And so this miracle, like other miracles, is not just historical in the sense Jesus did it, but it's also Jesus saying, these are the things I can do, and he's revealing himself to us. I am able to do these kinds of things. And leprosy was seen as one of the most uncurable diseases of their time. It's like cancer. In fact, sometimes it is cancer because of the nature of skin cancer and some of the diseases that we're aware of. And so we want to pay attention to this particular dynamic um, as it plays out. Now notice Jesus reaches out and touches him. And then he says, what? Go to the priest and do the washings and the ceremony. Maybe two things we could pull out. Remember what I said about Luke? Luke wants to show you that Jesus is not a rebellious um, anti-Jewish or anti, uh, in the sense of the Torah. He's not anti-Torah. Jesus is a faithful comes from a faithful Jewish background, Jewish family, and Jewish people surround him, Simeon, Anna, and the birth narratives, remember that? They go to sacrifice, they circumcise him. Jesus is telling him to follow the law of Moses here. Notice we don't have a new covenant. Jesus hasn't gone to the cross, he hasn't raised again. So he's telling him to follow this, but it's also for this man, he now gets to be a part of the community again. The priest is the one who invites him back in and says, now you can come to, to synagogue, you can go back into the temple, you can re-enter the community and your home. Because you're clean. Congratulations, you're clean. And the priest was the one during this time, according to the law and the traditions, the priest was the one who invited the physical self. He also healed his community or his relationships, his social self, and his religious ability to worship God whole. And so if if this is just a picture, if Jesus' miracles are historical, yes, but they're also a little bit of a parable or a picture, or a sign. John just uses the word sign. He's like, all his miracles, they point to something. And if this is, I want to encourage you, it's this. Jesus comes and he's going to, he wants to heal you ultimately, physically, socially, but also religiously in your relationship and access to God. So he wants to bring you back into the community with people, back into the community with God. And and when we look at Revelation and we look at what Jesus is going to do when he says it's done, it's finished, guess what he's going to do? He's going to heal you physically. Revelation says seven no mores. There's no more death, no more sickness, no more pain, no more crying. Seven times it says no more something. John's like, that means no more bad things. And then it says, and you'll dwell with God and you'll be his people. You have access 
and you're with other people in restored relationships. You see how these miracles work? So yes, here's this Jesus who's compassionate for this man, but he's also compassionate for those of you who follow him and saying, this is the kind of person I am if you follow me. And so I want us to start to see miracles as we study through that way, because oftentimes they indicate the Jesus that we're following and what he's offering for us should we follow him. Questions about the story about the leper, the story of the leper. Kind of a quick quick walkthrough, okay? Next, next story, someone to read, um, and I, my verse references are wrong there. Sorry about that. Um, it is verse 17 through verse 26. Verse 17 through verse 26. Oh, it's the next one that's wrong. So, yeah, sorry, 5 verse 17 through 26. All right, thank you. Well, notice there's a bunch of questions in this text. In fact, one of, my, one of my readings through the Bible, one thing I did in the Gospels, I just wrote down, every time there was a question about Jesus and who he was, I just wrote, put a question mark there or a Q there. There's a lot of questions in the Bible, especially Gospel of Luke about Jesus. What are some of the questions about Jesus that are asked of different people here? What are people asking? They might be literal questions or just questions that hang in the air. Yeah. Yeah. How can this guy... I mean, think about it, really. Like, if I walk up to you and I say, hey, you're forgiven of all your sins. You're like, who are you, right, at some level? Okay, so there is a dynamic. There's a question that hangs in the air. Who gave you that authority? It's a pretty good question, to be honest. Now, I know if you grew up in the church like I did, like, we've been taught our entire lives, Jesus has that authority to forgive sins. So we kind of assume it. I want to rewind the tape a little bit and go, okay, but why do you assume it? I mean, I think you're right. But don't assume that these people, when it comes to this question, weren't asking a really good question. How do we know you have the ability, Jesus, to forgive sins? Well, Jesus, so you know I have forgiven, uh, the ability to forgive sins. And I'm going to actually give this sign to you. And, and a man who is paralyzed, like the leper, is seen as something that is likely to be an in, uh, ability to heal. So he says, pick up your mat and walk. And he does. And Jesus is like, see, he told you. Now, in case you don't, in case that's not enough for you, because it wasn't enough for some of them, the resurrection is kind of the culminating moment of this, isn't it? I mean, Jesus isn't paralyzed. He's dead. But Jesus said what? I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die for your sins. And I'm going to come back to life again. If you follow me, you can, when you die, be raised again, and know that you're forgiven. And we're like, really? How do we know? And he's like, well, how about I go first? And he's raised. So like this man who is paralyzed, Jesus' miracles oftentimes indicate that Jesus can do what he said he can do. Can I just be honest with you? The resurrection, the historical resurrection for me, is one of those linchpins. I'm going to celebrate Easter in the middle of our time together. Like, it is one of those moments that that is historically true. If Jesus rose from the dead, you probably ought to listen to him. But he also has the authority to do other things as well. And so if you're not forgiving yourself, and Jesus is willing to forgive you, maybe part of your journey of following Jesus is allowing yourself to be clear about forgiveness. If I, if I do not allow Jesus to forgive me, then I actually I actually take what he did on the cross and I make it less, less valuable, less potent or powerful. Because what I'm saying is, is his death on the cross and his resurrection isn't enough to cover my sin. And Jesus goes, you're seeing it too small. It is actually enough. So the problem is, is you're not actually at that point, your sin is enough for you to fall down at the feet of Jesus like Peter and go, get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus doesn't go away. He actually just wants to say, I know you are a sinful person. I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to take that debt. The debt's big. And one of the parables we're going to get to later, the national debt is how big it's described as. But I'm going to pay for it and I will take it on myself. And so this idea of forgiveness here is big. And think about this man, like he's laying there paralyzed and Jesus goes, hey, your sin's forgiven. I would like kind of wonder, Tim Keller actually in his book on forgiveness talks about this a bit. I kind of wonder if he's like, oh, that's great that I'm forgiven, but I really need physical healing. I don't know. Maybe the other thing he thought is that's actually what I need more. I do have deeper needs, the surface needs we sometimes come to Jesus for, right? 
And sometimes Jesus sees down what is the deepest inside of us, and he goes, I actually want to heal that. I want to heal your relationship with God. And then we'll talk about walking around. Do you think there's other people who are actually out walking around who actually needed that forgiveness healing? Probably even more so than the ability to walk around? Probably so. You know that this is true. There's people who have way more than you do, money, whatever it is, health, whatever it is, but they have far less than you to do because of the hope you have in Jesus or the relationship with God you have in Jesus. This is part of what is true about discipleship. And so this story, of course, it's one of those stories that's a very popular story. My kids love this story. They tore a hole in his roof. And, um, and I love the, the friendship that's here. We can pull a number of things out of here. But really the, the big theme is, who is Jesus? He's, he's able to forgive even those who have as their deepest need, um, you know, not physical needs, but, but spiritual needs. Questions about that one? Questions about that episode? Notice what we're doing. Small episodes, but they're really about Jesus and who he is and what he comes to bring those who follow him as disciples. Questions or thoughts about it or observations about it? I think I just have on the light bulb moment of how physical healing yeah. and spiritual healing go together. Yeah, yeah. You know, if, if we're broken inside, you see a lot of health issues and yeah. people talk about how you're yeah, the psych, I mean, they talk about like psychosomatic, so like our psych, psyche or mind or spirit connected to our soma, our body, psychosomatic connection. We talk a lot about that. The soul is kind of the thing that seems to be, according to even what seems to be the New Testament dynamics of humanity or anthropology, the soul kind of connects all those pieces together. Our identity with our physical body and our mind and our heart and our will all kind of culminate, but they all impact, we're whole. They all impact each other. That's, that's true. And I think there is a dynamic to where we recognize we're never going to be completely healed until eternity. We're always going to have some ailment. And that's like this guy, this guy who's a leper. Did he get sick again? Paralyzed guy, did he? I mean, I'd hate it, but like, let, did he get hit by a horse cart later on? No. Did he get run over by someone? Uh, something happened to him. Like his grave was somewhere. So did Jesus heal him? You'd go, yeah, No. Yeah, no. Did Lazarus die again? That's right. Is that a say goodbye to Jim Dalrymple? Oh, hey, no, guess not. He's back again. Um, I mean, that's kind of our hope. But, but Jesus' miracles are saying, someday I'm going to do this completely. And that's actually something I'm longing for the older I get, to be honest. The more I see how broken this world is, the more I'm like, we're not going to get it figured out. And my body's never going to be exactly as it needs to be. I'm never going to be exactly who I need to be. And I look forward to, I think part of what I look forward to heaven with the presence of God, it's not so much about the where, it's, it's more about the what, the deeper, like this guy. It's the contentment with myself and my relationships and my worlds. Peace is what the Jewish people would call it, shalom, contentment. Like, could you imagine waking up every day and being like, all's good? And with that is that dynamic of the presence of God. But notice that it's a new creation. God created us to worship him, not only through relationship in the sense of like coming and singing and worshiping and studying, but also like walking. I mean, I was in Arizona in January. I told you all this, like seeing God's creation in a new way. And I was like, wow, like you're good. Like you're amazing. Like I'm just the colors of the desert as it was coming up over. Wow, God, like look at you. And, And so I have moments like that where that's a glimpse just a foretaste of what new creation is meant to be as we experience God and his glory in his creation or in his goodness. And so these these miracles, again, give us that foretaste and give us some of that picture. Uh, Let me walk through the next couple a little bit more quickly because you're you're getting the the, kind of the handle on how to to look at these. Um, The next one is chapter 5, verse 27, and then in your handout, it's 32. I was handed out together today in Branson while my son was doing a high ropes course inside, and then he would come invite me to go on the high ropes course and zip lines with him, and so I'd leave my computer there, and I'd come, you know, so sorry about that, but that should be uh, 27 through verse 32. Um, And notice what we have here is Jesus calling a man who's a tax collector. You might know him better as Matthew, because in Matthew's gospel, he uses that name. Matthew as a, word, a name means the, the, the phrase gift of God. Here's my guess. Jesus gave him that nickname. 
Levi is an interesting name. It's a family name of one of the tribes of Israel. Weirdly enough, it's a priestly tribe. I don't know this for sure. I really don't. This is just a guess. So here as what it is. Um, it'd be weird, and yet you, you kind of think of the family dynamics, not just the social dynamics of someone who should be a priest and going to be a tax collector for the Romans. Like, imagine that conversation with a dad or mom, right? Now, if you've watched The Chosen, you kind of get some of this tension. I, you know, if you haven't, it, it's worthwhile for you. There's some creative licensing there. I would say that this is probably creative license as well, just based upon the name. I don't know that we can figure all of that out. But at the same time, you do have this name, Levi, and then what looks like a nickname, but people in the ancient world had multiple names, sometimes even based upon different dialects or religions or the different groups they were working in. You know, oftentimes your name was, you know, so-and-so, son of so-and-so, or so-and-so, also called so-and-so. Thomas is the name twin, probably a nickname, okay, or a name given, but we don't know. So, so that would be true of all of them. I do find it intriguing, though, that that maybe part of his identity is Jesus calling him gift of God. And here's this person who is seen as an outsider. Um, and so it's interesting to me that Matthew uses that name in what I believe is his gospel that he wrote. And, uh, and that's a dynamic that's interesting. I also find it interesting um, that in this passage, we have the phrase where Jesus says, it's not the healthy people who need a doctor. My, my wife was sick this week. She had strep throat earlier this week. Don't worry. Um, and, and the reality is I didn't need a doctor. I, I've actually, I've never had a doctor. I need one. I'm 43. I need to get a personal doctor. If you have a recommendation, let me know later. But I've never actually had a personal doctor. Um, I've only had the flu like twice. Um, and and I've, I've sprung my ankle one time. So I went to the doctor then. I had some stress issues about 10, 15 years ago. But I've not, I just don't go to the doctor. Now, my wife was like, you're foolish. And at some level, yeah, I'm probably foolish, right? COVID 2020, January, my New Year's resolution was to get a doctor. I'm 40 years old. I need a doctor. Then COVID hit, and I had a good excuse. I didn't get a doctor. And, um, and, and yet we know this is true. Like, when you're sick, you actually need a doctor. I find it intriguing. Luke is a doctor. It's a physician. Um, Luke, as he's writing this, he knows kind of the reality of sickness, and he knows the reality uh, of um, you know, people's need for a physician. We, we find that, by the way, in Colossians 4.14. Paul says, Luke is with me, uh, the physician. That's where we learn that he is a doctor. Um, we, also, we also hear this little phrase, I've not come to call righteous people, people who have it all figured out, but I've call, come to call sinners. And so this little story of Matthew is yet again another story like Peter that Jesus is gathering to himself, outsiders and outcasts, people who need to recognize they're a gift of God even though they, they have been outcasts or they've been, quite frankly, sinners. So, so not a lot of surprise that's there. Um, maybe you know this about tax collectors. Maybe you don't. Tax collecting in the first century world is a little bit different. I'm, I owe taxes this year, a couple thousand dollars. And I'm like, oh. so I'll wait till April to pay them. Um, uh, but the tax collectors in the ancient world are a little different than the IRS today. Um, you actually, what you would do, if you went to the Romans and you said, hey, I live in this region uh, as Matthew does up here near the Sea of Galilee, um, I think I can bring in, let's say, ten thousand, let's say, ten million dollars. I think I can, I think I can bring in ten million dollars. You would actually take that ten million dollars and you would pay it to the Romans up front, and you'd give them ten million dollars, saying, "I think I can actually raise that in taxes in that region." So you're fronting the money. Then your job is to what? Get that ten million. But how do we get a living doing that? You then add on to that, right? So you're making a bid, an auction bid to the Romans saying, I think I can raise at least this much. And then whatever you're able to raise above and beyond that is now yours. To you see why this was a corrupt system? Because now anything that you raised above your bid is now going to be yours. And here's this tax collector. Now Zacchaeus, a little bit later, when we get to the end of this, we're going to meet another little, uh, little, another little tax collector. He's going to be down here in Jericho. And guess what? He's a chief tax collector. So he's like the mafia you know, mobster guy who has tax collectors working for him. We know this kind of stuff in our world, right? And so when it comes to this dynamic, these would be outcast people. And some of our pictures of Matthew or of Levi in this story are true. Notice what Jesus says, I have come, I have come, I have come. I've come for people like him. The other thing I want you to notice is a table or a feast. In Luke, Jesus always eats with sinners, and when he's eating with people who don't think they're sinners, 
he flips the table upside down, not literally, well, in Jerusalem he does, but he flips the table upside down and it ends up being the sinful woman or the, the man who is sick with dropsy, it becomes the people on the outside that Jesus actually invites to his table and puts them in the front. You know this later on in John where Jesus washes feet. The gospel says tables matter to Jesus because he invites sinners to his table. When you take communion today, maybe that's one of the things you ought to hear in your mind is that Jesus invites sinful people like Matthew, Levi, outcast, sinful person who's gone against his people, but he invites them to be a gift of God. And he invites them to be his disciple and follow him. That becomes kind of a, a break. And notice that I'm breaking a little bit different than how many of our Bible's chapter breaks happen, kind of a little aside. Those were added later. Luke didn't put those in there for you. Um, and so sometimes we'll, we'll break differently than where the chapter breaks do. But I think we have these initial like episodes of Jesus going, who am I coming for? Peter, a guy like you, leper coming to heal you, paralytic coming to heal you, Levi coming to, to, to invite you. You notice that like, they're not very, like, that's a, that's a ragtag group. And, and so what happens in the next section is really this, that to those people, Jesus is bringing celebration and rest. So again, big pictures. The first one is kind of a weird story. And, and it's this story of people coming up and asking, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast like John's uh, uh, disciples do? And the Pharisees' disciples. Notice they're recognizing now Jesus has followers. And disciples live like their teacher. They, they don't just sit in like European rows and learn. This is actually like following and emulating and becoming like. It's more like what philosophers and rabbis did in the first century world than what sometimes we as Americans do when we sit in rows and we listen to a teacher and we go out with head knowledge, but not necessarily knowing how to like apply it to everyday relationships, college and high school. But sometimes church. Like, we can actually walk out of church sometimes going, that was great, I learned a lot about the Sea of Galilee and how big it is. And if you didn't learn how to follow Jesus, then you didn't learn the way Jesus is actually wanting you to teach. Okay, we, we want to learn how to live and have relationships and, and who we are because of that. And so the, these people are coming up to Jesus and saying, hey, why don't your disciples fast? Like, why don't they go without food? Like, Jesus went without food. So you know that Jesus believes fasting is Okay. But Jesus actually says, hey, now's not actually the right time. Now is actually the time for celebration because I'm here. And then he actually uses two little parables that don't make a whole lot of sense to us. I mean, they're kind of weird for us. Like, you don't take cloth that's not been pre-washed and put it on something that has been pre-washed and then sew it on as a patch because if you wash the whole thing, then that thing that hasn't been pre-washed, it shrinks. Have you ever shrunk something? It shrinks and it pulls and ruins the whole garment. Jesus like, you just, it's not the right time. It's just, it just doesn't make sense. Then the second parable is about wineskins. And he's just like, you don't take old wine and new wine and new wineskins. It just doesn't make sense. And, and the whole parable, the whole dynamic is just this. It's just not the right time. It's kind of an interesting dynamic because here's what's weird. Sometimes like we don't respond appropriately to the right time either. Sometimes like it's a time to repent and we're actually like celebrating Sometimes it's a time to celebrate. We look like, I mean, here's a you know, cliche phrase that I had someone use. You know, Christians look like they're pickled in pickle juice, right? But we're supposed to be people who are joy, full of joy. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And we're like, I don't know. You see what I'm saying? Or like, we're worried. Like, oh, the stock market's falling. Oh, no, no, no. And we're like, oh, worried. And Jesus like, I've got it, y'all. I've overcome the world. And we don't respond. Can I just say? I don't always respond the right way as a disciple of Jesus. You see, this, is, this is the heartbeat of that. There's going to be a time of fasting, like as in the crucifixion. It's coming where they're going to need to fast. And they're going to mourn that I'm gone. But now is just not the right time while I'm walking around with them. And the imagery of a bridegroom or a wedding is the image of the Messiah coming. And part of the promise in the Old Testament, we don't pick up on it necessarily, part of the promise in the Old Testament is that you'd hear the sounds of weddings again. Because here's their history, and, and we miss it. When the people who had the promised land were here, it's a land full of milk and honey, a land of celebration. But then when Assyria comes and takes these people out, leaves these people here, they intermarry, with the people who are brought in, that's why they're outsiders now. Sometimes we use the phrase half-breeds, okay? But God, part of the curse was you would not hear the sound of weddings anymore. So when they're off in Babylon, now I'm even off the, 
off the board here, when they're off in Babylon and Assyria, and, and then when they come back, part of the promise is when they come back out of exile, you're going to hear the sound of weddings again. And Jesus, in text and other texts, he alludes to Messiah's here. It's time for those promises of restoration to be fulfilled. I know that's kind of technical, but they would have picked up on that because that's part of what they were hoping for because they still think that they're right. They're responsible for all of this and that the celebration really hasn't begun. So they're still waiting for the Messiah to keep those promises. So when Jesus says this, now's the time. The bridegroom's here. The wedding's getting ready to happen. There's this messianic symbol that's behind some of that. Then we have right after that notice, and and I think these two stories are connected. Um, We have this um, dynamic on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus stirs a lot of trouble on the Sabbath with the Pharisees. But we know this about Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of rest. Sabbath is a day that God gives us and models for us as his people as a day of rest. But, but notice some things about this. In the Old Testament, Sabbath laws were that you should put God first, that you should prioritize God, that you should trust God, and that by trusting God, you could actually stop work for a moment and assume that God's got this, that that's one of the ways you prioritize God is by stopping and relating to him and his people. So it's a declaration of worship, but also of faith that God's got this. It's also for the purpose of your refreshment and your, and I'm just going to use, I think I use the phrase here of uh, refreshing. So restoring, refreshing. So restoring of life. So that's part of the reason for Sabbath. But Sabbath also has symbolism like the wedding imagery that one day there is a greater Sabbath that's going to come. And that greater Sabbath is God's going to get rid of all of the curse and you're going to finally just have rest as in like the garden. So even the word Sabbath or the idea of Sabbath has some like, it's, your phrase is eschatological, but has some symbolism of the messianic kingdom that's going to come. And so this conflict that keeps coming up over Sabbath, part of that is because of the symbol and the theology behind Sabbath. And so the disciples are actually walking. And what's funny is I actually did this on Sabbath in Israel. Um, as I was walking through a grain field, I was like, there's grain. How can I not do this right now? And so there was grain on the side of the road. I took the grain and rubbed it like this, blew on it, blew the chaff away, and I was left with kernels of grain. Now, these kernels of grain, you know, similar like pop, soft popcorn kernels, threw them in my mouth, and I was chewing on them. I thought, this is great. Honestly, it's one of those I'm going to forever remember. Um, obviously, one of the things that is in question then is, is that actually work which is prohibited in the Torah or in the law of Moses? Well, the Jewish rabbis had come up with all kinds of laws and traditions, oral traditions about this. They would later on continue to collect and write all these things down, that in the next hundred years after Jesus, those would become very formalized. And so we actually, like the Mishnah and the Talmud, maybe you hear those phrases, they become very formalized laws. So we hear echoes in that of like, these are the kinds of laws that they had. Like, how far can you lead your animal on the Sabbath? How, how far can you walk on the Sabbath? And they just had law after law of law of what it was to actually work on the Sabbath. But notice all of these are actually oral or traditions added to the Torah. And Jesus actually wants to go rather than out, this is, this is a rabbinic way of arguing, rather than to go out and create, keep creating all these laws and rules, he actually wants to go in and say, so let's ask the question of your heart. And what does he expose about their heart? That they're not about bringing rest to people. When they don't want to bring someone healing on the Sabbath, they actually don't have the heart of the Sabbath, which is what? That God wants to be first in your life, that he wants you to be refreshed, and that he wants to refresh you. Or excuse me, not he wants to be refreshed. He wants to bring refreshing to you. He wants to bring life to you through this gift of Sabbath. That's why Jesus says, uh, first of all, of the Sabbath. But second of all, Sabbath, it, your man is not made for Sabbath, but Sabbath is made for you. Like, you weren't created to keep Sabbath. Sabbath is actually created as a part of your design. Um, and part of this is wisdom. Um, you know this, we need rest. God created things in rhythm. Read Genesis 1. It was day, it was night, it was day, it was night, it was day, it was night. You hear the, hear the rhythm? Okay. And then we have weekly rhythm, right? Six days of work, one of your rests. Six days of work, 
one day rest. Six days of work, one day rest. Okay, so you have that. Now, with Resurrection Sunday later on, right, we have Resurrection Sunday now added to that. So now I have two days of rest. Hey, I'll take it. Okay? Um, some of you are like, well, yeah, but I still have to do those chore lists at home. I get you. I get you. I understand. Okay? But there's still a heart question of Sabbath. God still created you with this need for a rhythm of Sabbath, a rhythm of rest. And it still is. If you talk about the heart issue of it, not the law issue of it. The heart issue of it is that sometimes you need to trust God enough to say, I'm going to stop. And I'm going to put God first. Remember that I need him for all the other six days anyhow. That I can't do this on my own. That I need him to work with me. But also I need to celebrate. And I need to be refreshed. Saturated for you. But it also helps you put things into right, right priorities. And so when we, we put the Sabbath law here, like the theme of celebration, um, we have this reality that, that Jesus comes and he has authority over it, but he's coming to check us. Um, so when it comes to Jesus and this little story about David, um, Jesus basically just came claiming to be like King David, King David, and he can basically, because he's over the Sabbath, do what he needs to do to bring life. David came in and asked for show bread, bread that was left over from the, the tabernacle, and gave it the men that he had following him. And you might go, well, did, did David have that authority? And the answer is, uh... But God valued life in that moment over that showbread in that moment. So life is what Jesus is doing. He's saying life on Sabbath is the heart of the Sabbath. See that? The heart of the Sabbath is God restoring life or refreshing life. So if David needed bread to refresh life, he's actually in spirit keeping the Sabbath. Jesus in working to heal. Did Jesus work? No, God worked on the Sabbath, which Jesus is going to point that out later, that priests work, and other people work. It's not so much the work, it's the heart. And so Jesus, when he comes later on, then heals this man with a withered hand. It's the same thing as David. He's giving life on the Sabbath. And in that, in his spirit and heart, he's keeping the Sabbath. Is that helpful? That's a technical, very Jewish issue that's in the first uh, part of chapter 6 that's going on, verses 1 through 11. Question, questions about that? There's probably some questions about Sabbath. Let me, let me close by saying this. Um, I mentioned the rhythm. One time I had a friend of mine without any rest notes, all quarter notes, which I'm not a musician. I know enough about it to know to say that. And you couldn't make it out. You didn't know what the song was. Because without the rest notes, without the quarter notes, without the notes being drawn out, you actually don't have the rhythm, or the music. And sometimes when our life is breaking down, it's because we're not living according to the wisdom or the rhythm of how God created us. There's wisdom in rest. There's wisdom in nightly rest and in weekly rest and in regular rest. Notice where we started, and then we'll kind of come back and, and pick up uh, this number four that we have in chapter six, verse 12. But notice what we have is we have Jesus starting out, and he was, went to desolate places to pray. And we ended with Jesus saying, I'm the Sabbath. I mean to bring rest if you follow me. Can I say this? Jesus wants to bring you rest now, but there's a greater rest that he wants to promise you. And you'll only get glimpses of that rest today. Have you ever had glimpses of that rest? It's going to be sunny outside today. Every now and again, like I'll, I'll have a barbecue in my backyard with my family. We'll be sitting on the back porch. The sun shines down on that stamped uh, concrete deck back porch. And we'll, we'll be playing on my playlist for summer. I have a summer playlist. I call it the summer pool playlist because we have a little pool we set up from Walmart out back. And, and there's every now and again where I'm sitting out there listening to my kids play football together. I'm like, oh, this is so good. And that's just a taste of what we'll have in heaven. And so when Jesus teaches us to go out and rest, he wants us to have a sample, but long for that greater rest that's yet to happen. We'll pick up, like I said, chapter 6, verse 12. Jesus is going to formally gather 12 disciples and formally start to address them in the Sermon on the Plain. Um, we'll catch up next week. Let me pray for us. We'll be out of here. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity we have to come and study your word. Um, God, I pray that this is fruitful, not just in the gathering of more knowledge, but God, so that we might know you more. And God, in knowing Jesus more, God, that we might become more like you. And so God, I pray that the things that we've learned today that are, are things that we can, as we walk out of here, continue to, to explore and continue to live out 
I pray that we've had some aha moments this morning even when it comes to following Jesus and some things that, that we discover that will continue to reshape how we interact with others, God, how we see ourselves, and God, how we see you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you, friends. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.